Hey lovelies, before we get started, I wanted to let you know about a few things going on around here. A lovely sale to benefit our frontline healthcare workers ends on June 30th. That's the day after this episode originally airs. At the time of this recording, there are still beautiful options left for every single size in my inclusive range of 2 through 24. And you now have the option to shop by size and browse only the styles in stock in your size. This is your last chance to shop 40% off and I'll donate 19% of your purchase to get PPE to our frontline healthcare workers. Use code LOVELYPPE at impactfashionnyc.com to get that deal. On the site, you'll also find a whole range of activities you can do with or without the whole family, some of which are free, all of which are high fashion. Those are going to be sticking around for a while. Find them by going to the activities tab at impactfashionnyc.com. Enjoy the show. From Impact Fashion, it's Be Impactful, a show about the women making a difference in their own corners of the world. I'm Rifki Itzkowitz, and on today's show, I talk with a writer and journalist about how a fiery letter to the editor led to her first jobs representing female Orthodox voices in print. She shares who her most hostile Twitter followers are and the challenge she thinks about on a daily basis. Avital Chizik Goldschmidt is fearless. She speaks her mind and stands up for what's right. That may not be surprising coming from a journalist, but it is incredibly rare to find such an outspoken and eloquent Orthodox female voice. I followed her writing for a while and got the chance to sit down and speak to her about the important work she does. I was a very bookish child. I think that's the best way to say it. Um, studious, quiet, on, on the quieter side. Um, just always immersed in my books and in my writing um, and, you know, and drawing my own like little passion pursuits. I think that's the way to describe dreamy eight-year-old Avital. <laughs> yeah, I was exactly the same way. Can you tell everyone what it is that you do now? I am a journalist. I'm an editor at The Forward. I teach journalism at Stern College, Yeshiva University for Women. Um, sorry, I teach journalism <laughs> at Stern College for Women at Yeshiva University. And I... Uh, I, you know, I'm, I write all over the place. I'm working on a book and I am also a Revitzen on my off time. Right. Cause you have so much off time with everything that you have going on. So much spare time. Oh, and I'm a mom. Thank God. Oh, right. So, <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so journalism, I think is something that a lot of people don't consider as a career. I think that particularly Orthodox women don't really consider it as a career. I actually considered it for yeah. about like six months. And I, I really, I really thought about it. And then I just, I had to do fashion. It was it, like, I was being pulled so hard in that direction. Um, but what have you, were you always someone who liked to write? How did you decide that you, that was what you wanted to do? So I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Um, as I said, I was always writing as a child. Um, in middle school, as early as middle school, I was applying to different writing competitions. Uh, at high school, I grew up like a very, you know, kind of classic modern Orthodox suburban um, childhood. And I was applying and I went to more kind of religious girls school and I was applying to a lot of national competitions in writing, which was kind of considered weird uh, where I was, but I just did it because I wanted to see where it would go and see maybe other people might like what I have to say. Um, and that, that was mostly fiction writing. And then I went to college, I went to Sturm and I got involved in some newspapers on campus and was doing like the kind of classic reporting, nothing major. And then towards the end of the, of my time there, I, uh, I was, I wrote a very passionate essay about, uh, what it means, what it's like to grow up as an Orthodox young woman with this culture of excessive stringency where modesty is all about showing how super pious you are um and uh it's like a you know kind of keeping up with the cohen's but in terms of stringency rather than money um and i pitched the essay to talent magazine it was a cold pitch 
was 20 years old and they published it and it went viral. Um, you know, viral, at least in my shtetl community, my universe, uh, people were just posting it and sharing it. It was going all over the place. People were saying, you know, you really describe the culture, you really captured it. Um, and, and that was the kind of the first moment where I thought to myself, oh, maybe I do, maybe I can do this. Maybe I do have what to say about the religious community, about Judaism, about womanhood, all these things that I was really thinking about, but I never thought I would end up writing about. So that, that's really how I began. Um, and uh, one thing led to another. You know, I started writing for Haaretz shortly after I graduated. Um, I was, that also kind of happened by chance. I sent a very fiery letter to the editor in response to an editorial that the editor-in-chief had written at the time. Uh, and they wrote back to me saying, we loved your letter, we're gonna publish it, but do you have time to meet with our editor in New York next week? And I was like, okay. Um, I had just turned 21. And I met with them and they said, we want, we really want an Orthodox female voice. Uh, so would you, you know, consider being a contributor for us, a regular contributor? You know, it's like a stringer work, which means that, you know, it's not a full-time job, but it means that you're like, you know, they'll send you an assignment and then you run after it. So I did that for about five years. Uh, I was running around Manhattan and Brooklyn and I did some traveling as well. I went to Eastern Europe, um, Brazil, Israel a bunch of times and various stories in the Orthodox community um, and more than that not just the Orthodox um, and that, that was really that was really how I got into it it was always my passion um, but you know I definitely have always tried I've applied to millions and millions of things and got rejected I don't know how many times um, and I think there's also an element of chutzpah where you need to be able to not think about what the reaction will be and just do it. I love that way of thinking. That's, yeah. that's, I think a lot of how I approach my own career also is just like, just ask and then you'll, you'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you said about, you know, it being an unorthodox career, I think it's a really important point. Um, and something I'm thinking about a lot lately, uh, I teach journalism at Stern and, um, you know, it's, it's a really meaningful and exciting thing to do to teach young religious women, uh, young Jewish women rather, uh, how, you know, the basic tools of journalism, what, you know, how to build a career in this, how to find good stories, how to angle them correctly. Uh, and it's a problem because it's something I do passionately because I, it's a huge problem that we don't have more journalists in our community who are really focused on issues in the community. Um, you know, I think there's this often this like criticism oh, well, why, you know, why did that, you know, ex-secular paper write about the Orthodox in that way? Well, maybe because we're not producing journalists inside our community who can then go and do that work in a more sensitive and perhaps more accurate way. Right. And you also, you write a lot about the, the dissection, uh, not like the cross, the, what's it called? The, the intersection? Thank you. Um, the the intersection between um, between womanhood and orthodoxy, and also this idea of reporting in the orthodox world, it's something that's usually met with not the best of reactions. Um, on in um, in in an article that you wrote, there was a sentence that you had that um, because I am an orthodox Jewish journalist, often writing about the failings of my community, I too have gotten used to being called a traitor. Yeah. What's that? How does that dynamic play out? Because I, I am personally someone who feels like the more that people know about orthodoxy, the more that they can get to know us, you know, the more that they can get to see how it is that we live, realize that orthodox women are not oppressed, or that modesty <laughs> is not something that's forced on us, or like all of these narratives that are just not true, certainly not among my friends. Um, yeah. And at the same time, the the, the journalism is met with such animosity. Yeah, I, I think there's just, um, you know, there's discomfort with exposure uh, within the community. So sunlight might be the best disinfectant, but, you know, for people inside, it's for some people inside, I want. Um, it is, it's just extremely uncomfortable. Uh, they cannot face the realities of life inside. And I agree with you. 
the problem with the culture that is then created when we act that way is then, you know, by, by shoving things under the carpet is then exactly that. Then the world does not see true representations of our life. And I think the best kind of most obvious example in pop culture recently, you know, it was in film and the way that Orthodox women are often portrayed and, you know, unorthodox on Netflix or disobedience, which came out about two years ago. Um, a lot of the way that Hollywood looks at our community is probably, you know, it's America. It's probably the most, one of the most influential factors in the way that we are perceived by a wider American public. And um, yeah, of course we're going to be perceived as oppressed women when we don't encourage honest discussion of the problems in our community, especially by women, um, then obviously the outside world looks in and says, well, they must be repressed. They must be silenced. Uh, and, that's, and that just ends up hurting us. Right. And I mean, an argument can be made that in a lot of ways, when it comes to mainstream orthodox media, Mm -hmm. women don't really have a voice and they certainly don't have a face yeah. there. Um, sure. And that, that, see that to me creates such huge problems because a, a, I was asked by a, by a major, um, by, by a major Orthodox magazine uh, mm -hmm. to pitch my business in like a shark tank type um, setup that they yeah. have there. Um, and the very first question that was asked, well, and I said to them, I was like, well, I sell, I sell women's clothing. How are you going to, portray that. Um, and the very first question that they said was, that they asked me was, well, do you have a man who works with you in the business? Um, right. <laughs> and can we show his picture? Right. And yeah, they were like, do you have a man who works with you in the business? Um, and then he'll pitch and we'll show him pitching. Um, and he can like be holding up a dress. And to me, it's like, and, well, first of all, I don't. And then, and when I told them that I don't, their, their next question was, well, well, can your husband pitch for you? Yes. And I said to them, I was like, well, first of all, you don't know that I'm married at the time I was, but like, you don't know that. Um, and no, he can't because my husband doesn't know how my business runs. Like that doesn't make any sense. I'd be like, if you ask me to go and do his job, he's an accountant and I'm completely unqualified to do that. The whole thing was just really, it, it was a really demoralizing process. Um, yeah. And I and I stopped trying to get like, I, I stopped trying to get the media attention that way because mm -hmm. it just wasn't there. It just wasn't available to me. So it's not really surprising to me that people think that, um, that, you know, Orthodox women have been silenced because in a way we kind of have, but at the same time, there's also been all of these other platforms where yeah. we can, where we can speak up and, and, you know, and that's where we really thrive and um, things like podcasts and Instagram and all of that have been these huge places. Um, yes. There's been a lot of, I know that you've also gotten that your, your husband has gotten pushback in his career because mm -hmm. of what you do, because of the views that you hold. How does, how does that play out for you? Like, do you care when people say that or do you just roll your eyes and tell them to move on? Um, I think at this point I've come to, we're married five years now, thank God. And I, at this point I'm pretty comfortable. I'm just used to it um, for the most part. There are always moments where I'm just caught by my own um, insecurities, but it, in the beginning, it was definitely difficult um, because I married into the rabbinate. Like I wasn't marrying a young smicha, a rabbinical school student. I was I married a you know a rabbi who already had a pulpit, um, an assistant rabbi at a, at a large Manhattan synagogue, um, and it was uncomfortable to say the least when I started writing more about politics and. Um, and that happened in around 2016, around the election. I had very strong views and I continue to, and I don't make, you know, I don't hide them. And that's, you know, that, that's my job. And I think not only is it my job, but I think people are looking for that, are looking for religious voices reacting to what is going on. So I, I really, I became more and more vocal on, on local politics. And that was very uncomfortable um, in a shul where, um, let's just say several members of the White House administration are also members. Um, oh, so, awkward. Yeah, we're at the Upper East Side. So we really like, we have the whole gamut um, of many people who are in very high, powerful places. And you can Google more about that on your own time. Um, but it was really uncomfortable 
um, in the beginning. Now I am just much more comfortable. I, you know, there were a few pieces I wrote that I knew were going to get me into quote unquote trouble. Um, and it was not easy on our shalom bias, honestly, at first on our, you know, marital harmony. Uh, we were, there was a lot of, you know, for him, it's, you know, shocking. Like, you know, I'm here I am with my own opinions that could affect his relationships. Um, that was about a few years ago. Now we're, I think, at a different place and people know me, they know my politics um, and that's fine. I mean, I welcome disagreement. I am happy to hear opinions and I will stand at Kiddush smiling away on my heels while you tell me how I am wrong um, and that's fine. But it's, you know, there were times where I've definitely faced um, crazy things. People write crazy letters to him or call him about me or um, I'll never forget someone walked up to him and someone who's also very, you know, kind of close to the White House walked up to him and said, you know, your wife is tweeting against me. And I wasn't, I never, ever, ever tweet, like really comment on specific people who are related to the synagogue. It's way too much of a confliction of a conflict. But, um, but you know, this person just decided that if I had these politics, I must be tweeting against her. Um, it's, so there, it's weird. I mean, I, I don't, part of it is a Rebbitzin problem. I think, you know, Rebbitzins, you live in a fishbowl, but then on top of that, there's, I think it's just general being a visible from woman just puts you into really intense scrutiny. For sure. There, I think that, I do think that as any, like, very outwardly religious person, you're going to be held to a higher standard. Like I know yeah. that my my friends who are of all religions, they the the thing that we all have in common is that people are surprised to hear that we don't always use the most polite language to say right. nicely, <laughs> and, th and they're like, "Wait, you know what that word is?" Be like, "Yes, I'm yes, like obviously." <laughs> and yeah, I exist online. That's really funny. Right, um, like and and that's common across all religions. It's just that yeah. people assume yeah. that that yeah. we never and that to me I always find to be so. I don't know. I guess, I guess everyone has, some things never change, I guess. Yeah. I think, I, I do think though that women face it much more than men. Um, like I do, and, I, and I'll say not just in terms of their ideas that they're, that they hold, but also, well, actually let's start with ideas. Like I get so much pushback. My most hostile, hostile followers on Twitter um, are Orthodox men. <laughs> so I call them the ortho bros. Um, and they're like, <laughs> They just come after me and they just like, tr and they come after me with like very personal attacks. Um, also sometimes attacking like my family. Um, and these are people who like are not even six degrees of separation away from me. Like they're one degree of separation. Like they learned in the same yeshiva as my husband or like, you know, I'll bump into them at a wedding. Like, and they say the most disgusting things. And I, I, I've learned that I think they're, it's so threatening when there is a woman, when there is a vocal woman who looks like your wife maybe and talks like you and, you know, and dresses modestly, but, you know, still has an opinion that doesn't fall in line with what you want to, you know, put forward. So I think there's like, and it, it comes, it comes into play with women who have ideas, but also just, you know, in terms of like women's you know, I think religious observance as well is often super scrutinized way more than men. So like the magazine you mentioned, you know, the, all those magazines and newspapers, they, the men that are featured in there are like, you know, just whatever, like a, you know, chill businessmen, entrepreneurs. Um, and no one asks them like, you know, do you pray three times a day with a service or like, do you only wear a white shirt or also, you know, blue? Like no one asks them these like silly religious credentials that we've kind of created in our code of society. But for women, there is such a higher sort of threshold for what you have to pass in order to be deemed appropriate on a public platform. Yeah, it's, it's true. And it's, you know, it's interesting because the, the, the like to call a spade a spade there is i think a certain level of just deep ingrained misogyny that exists in orthodox lifestyle and it might not be you know i, I might not experience it from the um like men in my immediate family like i certainly wouldn't call my husband sexist but no. at the same time there's there there is something about the way that i don't know if it's the way that the society is structured or just mm -hmm. the way in which certain people are encouraged to speak up more than 
than others that like men are just encouraged to speak up more than women um when when you talk about these things when you when you call them out there are Mm -hmm. people who are going to be that they're gonna they're gonna feel threatened by it why do you think that there are people who are so much more threatened hearing you speak as opposed to hearing somebody who might not look like their wives speak so there's a certain there's a fear of someone who presents as a member um and you know i see myself as a member for sure um and someone who understands the intricacies right like the last few weeks about two weeks ago I, i had a a big story about um, a profile of uh, Hasidic reporter Jacob Kornblue, a wonderful colleague who's done, who's known as a big like political reporter in the New York, in New York City. He's totally self-educated, classic Hasidic upbringing, um, and really just always had a passion for journalism and politics. And I profiled him, and within it, you know, in that profile, I wove in um, what it means to be a journalist in the firm community and what it means more than just journalism to be a whistleblower. Right? These are the same issues that activists often face um and that was that was one of the big kind of themes there is that you know we know the way politics work in this community and you know we won't get into details here but um you know certain organizations and certain lobby groups and certain personalities who are kind of heralded as leadership in the community whom we turn to in for example a health crisis you know for guidance those you know, we know, those who are inside the community know how it works. Um, we know the relationships with government. We know the relationships with big money um, in a way that a secular journalist never would know. So, um, you know, I think we are better poised to be able to look at something very soberly and say, you know, here's what works and here's what doesn't work. Uh, and that is very scary because I think to a secular media person, it is very easy. And I've watched it myself. Um, you know, I've, I've seen how this happens. Like, I think, you know, community kind of leaders and like, you know, machers, as we say, the people who like are the liaisons to the media paint a certain picture, um, you know, will often distract from a problem to talk about something else. And the journalists who might not, might not know that this is a tactic, might not know that this is, you know, that, that the distraction is a distraction. Um, and I'm sorry to speak in such vague terms, but, but that, but that it's like a very common pattern that I see. And you can literally plug in any situation, whether it's sexual abuse or drug use or, um, you know, attitudes, you know, to, to diseases, even and vaccinations, it's the same sort of thing again and again. Um, and, and again, and a journalist inside knows what's really going on. Uh, and that's, and that's what's scary because, and it's interesting because I've been very active on this front in the last months, um, with all of the terrible challenges and tragedies that have befallen our community. And there was a lot of fear. I was, you know, posting receipts, you know, when people were saying, oh, this rabbi really took coronavirus seriously the first week. And I was like, no, he didn't. He didn't close anything down for several weeks. Here are the posters that were talking about him being open, you know? So, and, and, and that is uncomfortable for people because, oh my God, she has the receipts. Um, and that's, and so, so that's, that's, I think where the threat is. And I think, and also there's the extra element of when you're inside, you have a network, right? So a secular journalist might, um, you know, have the few tipsters, like the few sources that they always turn to. But when you're really inside the community, you can WhatsApp like a hundred different people and ask them about something and they'll say, oh yeah, sure. You should talk to that person in my community. Um, and you right away get all of the material. Right. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a byproduct of being part of that community. Yeah. There is a school of thought that would say, like, let's just assume that we want people to perceive the Orthodox community positively. Let's mm-hmm. assume that's our goal. Um, there is a school of thought that says, well, if we want people to perceive the community positively, then yeah. we need to portray it positively. And by you airing the dirty laundry, so to speak, you're just giving people another reason to hate Jews, to hate, to hate Orthodox Jews, to hate Hasidic Jews. Like you're just giving people more ammunition to, for anti-Semitism and, and for those things. What do you feel yeah. about that? So this is a challenge that I face pretty much on a day-to-day basis. Um, 
I literally was talking about it today with my husband. I said, you know, I'm seeing, I was getting a lot of really distasteful um, jokes and memes and various WhatsApp groups that I was in um, about race. And I was saying to him, like, I really wish I could just like put this together into a tweet thread or something or an Instagram story saying this is unacceptable the way that we we're talking about other groups. Um, but I didn't for now because I am, I'm concerned. I'm very concerned because I do know that these things stoke anti-Semitism and, you know, and I don't really know what the right answer is, to be honest. Sometimes like, you know, yeah, I need to be, I, my job is to expose racism in our midst, but at the same time, like, I'm just going to stoke hatred. Um, so, you know, I think sometimes the answer is figuring out what way, is there a controlled way to, to talk about this within the community, which is really hard these days. Um, but is there a way to kind of talk about an issue inside um, without throwing it on the cover of a newspaper? I cannot tell you how many stories I have passed up um, because I made that decision. Um, and why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to what? To, 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 um, to talk about these things within the community. Well, it's hard to keep something contained, right? Um, in the age of social media. So I, I have a controlled Instagram account um, for a reason because I needed one platform where I could really focus on my community. So I do have some non-Orthodox followers, but for the most part, they are, you know, from, and that is where I can talk more, sometimes more openly about problems that I see. Um, I, I, that's really the issue for me. Otherwise, I don't have an issue talking about, you know, whatever problems there are. Um, it's just, I want to make sure that sometimes it is indeed controlled when I think that if it comes out, it will hurt the community rather than help them deal with the problem. Sometimes, unfortunately, the way I've seen things go, things come out and it, you know, and it blows up. Um, though I do think overall exposure is everything. Um, I will tell you that, you know, I've tried, you know, abuse is a really good litmus test for this, like where I've been called about various abuse cases in the community. And I've tried so hard to go behind closed doors. I went as a Rebitson, I called people, I met with Rubunim, I asked them for their permission, for their suggestions, for their statements. Nothing works behind closed doors. The only way to do it is really in the end of the day in the open. Yeah, and that kind of sucks. It sucks. And, and I think, but, but there's also like, there's no real place, which brings us back to this question of media and the community. There's no real place to do that that feels kind of safe, right? Like I cannot take these stories to a single Orthodox publication. There is no, that, that's a crazy thing to think about. There's not one single religious um, publication in America that will publish a story about you know, an abuser or something. Um, and that, that to me is really concerning. And we shouldn't have to go to the forward or to the New York Times to tell these stories, but we have to. Um, and, and, that, and that's what's, I think, one of the things that really keeps me up at night. Why do you think they won't publish it? Because at the same, I get that, you know, nobody wants to talk about child sexual abuse. Nobody wants to talk about that. Um, and I get that that's hard for all communities. Um, and I get that in a religious community, there's even an extra layer about it because we don't want to talk about sex at all. We don't want to talk about healthy sex, let alone unhealthy, you know, sexual encounters. I, like all of that makes sense to me. Um, even though everything is... <laughs> <laughs> right. comes down to it but yeah <laughs> right like all, it makes sense to me why you don't want to talk about it at the same time though if there's someone who is hurting children yeah we should all know about that like why it seems to me like at the very least um an orthodox publication should have no problem saying you know this rabbi in this school you know at, ha, did something wrong on these and these days you should know about it even if you don't want to pass a pass a judgment on it why is there such a, um, why is there, why is there such pushback to that? Like that to me just makes, it seems very common sense to, to publicize that. Yes. Um, me too. <laughs> I agree. Uh, oh, haha, ha, no pun intended. <laughs> um, I, listen, I think that there are many reasons. I, I think on a big scale, um, unfortunately there's a lot of corruption that goes on in our community. Um, and that's something we also don't want to talk about, right? Um, relationships hinder any sort of exposure um, when it is absolutely necessarily, and even when there are children's lives on the line. Um, I think 
you know, in terms of the publications, publications are not, they're not journalism. Let's just like put it out there. That's not journalism. That's called a PR brochure. Okay. That's a chicken soup for the soul story about someone's child dying from cancer and davening, you know, praying next to them at the hospital bed. That that's not journalism. Um, and I, and, and it's a problem. Journalism is not a value in our community. And, and that is honestly why so unfortunately there are these problems continue to fester inside because no one is doing the work and saying, you know, this is a problem or those who do go do that work are either people who left the community or people who come from outside to investigate and then are, you know, kind of written off as outsiders and don't really know and they have an agenda. Um, and, you know, these days it's very in vogue to also <laughs> just call someone an anti-Semite. Um, but, but those are, those are problems that, you know, are, I, I think really, uh, honestly threaten the health of our community. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. I want to like pivot a tiny bit. Um, sure. you, you spend a lot of time, um, really examining what's going on in the Orthodox world and, and the issues that our community is facing. And sometimes you present solutions. Sometimes you just say, you know, maybe this is something that we should look at. Um, mm -hmm. what is something, what do you think is, is the biggest problem facing the Orthodox world now? Wow. Um, you can give me a top three because I know I know there's there's a lot there. Yeah, definitely several. Um, to be honest, the media question for me isn't one of the top, right? Um, Why is it so important to have an inclusive media? It's not about inclusive; it's about honest. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. And honest means inclusive, right? Like if we want to, an honest um, depiction of our community would include. 100% and not 50% of our members, um, you know, and it's not just about pictures. It really is about voices. It really is about, you know, women's perspectives on the fact that women don't write about politics, um, don't report the sort of the hard reported stories, tells you something about the way we are delegated to, you know, most likely cooking or parenting columns. Um, and this is a problem in journalism several decades ago across the board. Um, but, you know, the Orthodox community is behind, basically. Um, you know, so we, we don't have a platform to really discuss problems and also debate issues, right? Um, if you open up the opinion pages of all of these publications, you will most certainly find only one angle on all of these things. And that is, you know, and it's dangerous, honestly, because we're conditioning readers to to think a certain way, right? And these are readers who may not either have access to information um, or are not educated to look for other sources of information um, outside of these publications. So you have a very captive audience uh, and it's, it's frankly, it's like Soviet. I mean, that's what it comes down to. People, you know, when someone writes an anti-vaccination op-ed, that is then read by tens of thousands of Jews who consider maybe that person is right and big pharma is really a problem. So, um, so, so, and, and I really, I really don't, I'm not exaggerating. I really think lives are at stake at this point, um, whether it's about the way that publications write about health, um, or about women's issues, um, or, you know, or ignoring abuse. These are all major problems that we face. Um, so number one is media and number two is abuse. Um, I really was not someone who thought about abuse much um, over the years. I thankfully never saw it myself, experienced it, and, um, you know, I kind of thought it was this terrible thing that happens to just a very few people. Um, and then as I kind of grew in journalism, I just started being a receptacle for an insane amount of tips from people saying, you know, that rabbi, do you know that rabbi, do you know, you know, that teacher, uh, that businessman. And, um, you know, and it's, and I obviously have not investigated all of them, but those that I have looked into, it's really, really disconcerting to see how much this just can go rampant um, in our community. And if someone has either sort of a powerful position or money, uh, they get away with it. So, um, that's that's something that um, has really been keeping me also up at night for about the last two years. 
otherwise, I think education, I think attitudes to education are really dismal. Um, you know, and it's not about going to a high end university in any shape or form. I think it's about, you know, are we learning, you know, just to get that kind of certificate, uh, which will then allow you to earn some money? Or are we learning for the sake of learning also? And I think the former has become, is becoming increasingly normal in, um, you know, throughout the firm community. And it quells curiosity in a way. It doesn't, you know, encourage people to broaden their horizons, to read something different, right? I, you know, going to college, you're forced to take a certain amount of, you know, requirements and then electives and and the time it probably is frustrating because it has nothing to do with your major or your vocation but the point is that it broadens your mind and it allows you to think that you know to understand that you the world does not revolve around you or your community you know it's you know the whole world is not in the five towns or Muncie or TNAC it's much bigger than that and um and somehow I, I just think that something is We've, we've lost that ability to think big. Um, and, and I think it's largely because of the way our, our educational system really just pushes kids into just find that vocation, get, do those clips, get that nursing degree um, without really taking the time to explore ideas. Yeah, that is definitely something that I certainly experienced where it's like when I, I this will, is forever ingrained in my head. When I told someone, uh, someone uh, asked me what I did and I said, I'm a fashion designer. And, and she looked at me and she goes, well, that's not speech therapy. Oh my God. Like, no, it isn't. That's very observant of you. <laughs> like yeah, those, okay. yeah, those, you know, you, you mentioned before the, um, the conformity aspect and, and that's something that it's, it comes up a lot and it's, you know, keeping up with the Coens, I think is going to be my mm -hmm. new favorite phrase, but yeah. there's, because there are so many, you know, outward ways that we like to judge someone's observance, whether that's by how long their skirt is um, or how long their sleeves are, or, you know, what color their yarmulke is. Um, there is, there is a lot of I think that, that what that kind of also does is that it takes people's observance and kind of reduces it to those outward physical expressions of it. It becomes, you know, I'm not going to dress a certain way because I feel that's right or because that's how um, I connect to to God or to my femininity in that way or modesty in that way. I'm going to dress a certain way because that's what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Um, and that group think is sometimes really prevalent. Um, in, in orthodox circles. What are, what are some things that we can do to get around that? Hmm. Oh, to get out of group think. Listen, I, I, think, I think it's changing, to be honest. I am kind of optimistic about it. I agree with you about the externals, but um, I think social media has, this is the wonderful part of social media is that it allows people to have their own platforms and develop their own senses of self sort of, well, not real self, but public facing self. Um, and it, I think that's, that's becoming a positive thing. I think, you know, maybe two years ago, it was kind of like, it was just, I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong, you're the, you're the fashion expert, but a few years ago, we felt like it was a lot about, you know, like collabs and fashion and, um, you know, sort of like this very perfect curated um, picture. And I, and I think that's changing um, within this community, not all across the board. Yes sure and no. Yes and no. I think that authenticity is trending. You know, yes. I think that, yes. yeah, I think that everybody wants to be authentic. Yes. Um, and there's nothing quite as authentic <laughs> yes. as saying, let's talk real. I just have this thing I really need to share with you. It's been yeah. bothering me for the longest time. And then goes on to share a whole bunch of fluff that means nothing. Um, 100%. No, I don't mean that. I definitely don't mean that. But I mean, what I mean to say is I am seeing some from personalities using their platforms to talk about problems um, in their communities or talk about, you know, and look, at, I'm a journalist, so I'm always like looking at the problems. <laughs> right. <laughs> My job, um, where, where is the conflict? Where's the drama? Um, you know, 
for the bad actors. But but I do see that happening slowly. I mean, again, it's not across the board, but I do see some people using their platforms to talk about I, sometimes ideas. Um, and, and that is kind of reassuring. Um, I think that's also a generational thing, though, because I do think that, like, there are so many, like, I'm 25. There are yeah. so many women my age who have their own businesses and have social media presences to yeah. support those businesses and then they um they and and they just have modern opinions because they are they yeah. exist in the modern world as modern women and like to me it doesn't seem so radical to you know to, to roll my eyes at the fact that I couldn't get published in that magazine you know that to me is like like everyone in my in my circle agrees that that's stupid so right. And I think the fact that there's that overall sea change manifests itself in the way that people show up um, yes. in their social yeah. pages. It's it's totally generational. I'll tell you, I went to um, the the Rebitsons conference back in, I guess it was fall, though it feels like many lifetimes ago. There's a Rebitson conference? There is a Rebitsons conference. Um, That's amazing. By, yeah, by the YU and OU, I think. Um, it's really officially for REITs uh rabbis wives um but uh, whatever i emailed them saying hey guys i teach in stern and just because my husband went to lakewood doesn't mean you should you know (laughs) um so i went and i had a fantastic time but um you know it's good to commiserate (laughs) um but one of the interesting things that came out of it for me was the generational difference in the way that specifically rabbisons look at issues um which is very telling to me because, you know, I think it's a good kind of sampling, you know, of maybe the more conservative slash traditional women in the community. Um, and we can then make projections based off of that. Uh, so the, you know, there was this, one of the seminars that was at that, that day was about, um, was about, uh, you know, accepting a child who is LGBTQ, how to help a congregant who has, you know, a child who identifies as LGBTQ. And, um, you know, it was a very emotional conversation with the presenters um, who shared their story as parents. And the fascinating thing was there must have been about 100 women in that room. And you saw a very stark difference between the women. I don't want to say exact ages, but maybe like 45 and up and 45 and younger. Um, You know, I think the older women were for the most part, like kind of like shifting uncomfortably in their seats. And then they just like sat, they sat there quietly, they listened, and then they went out to get their cup of coffee. And then you have the younger women who were like literally lining up to speak to the presenters because each one of them has a friend or a congregant who is, who is dealing with something. And, you know, and I was, I was, I was one of those women and I was, you know, standing and, and I was listening to the way that the questions that these women were asking and they were just like it was so much was with so much empathy with so much rahmanut, with so much mercy and it just made me think like I just you can't deny that some things have changed and and our generation is really I believe you know part of that I went to speak also a few months before that I spoke at the REITS conference the rabbinic um, you know, school at Yeshiva University, they have an annual conference for the rabbis as well. And I walked in and I, I mean, I was just like having a conversation with the, the head of the OU on stage. And, um, and they probably just invited me because I needed a from woman. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I know whatever, I'll take it. Um, I'll take the stage. Um, and I walk in there and I was, there were like, a whole group of young rabbis, I would say in their 30s, who were just like, one after another, were walking up to me saying, you know, I read your work. I so appreciate what you're doing. It's so important in our community. It was so moving, not because of me, but because, wow, this is the next generation of rabbis, right? And they appreciate someone who's speaking up about women's issues, for example, right? Um, so so those, are, those gave me hope. Um, and I, I do believe that our generation is really like going to be ushering in, um, you know, I think a different reality and, you know, a halachic Torah reality that is totally passionate about what Judaism is truly about and not so much about what is sort of expected because of some social mores that were decided back who knows when. Amen. (laughs) 
yeah like all 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 of the hearts <laughs> to me it's it's so interesting how when when you have something like that that generational divide like the lgbtq issue is such a good example because i think that that's something that like for a lot of people in our generation is just not a question and for a lot of people in our parents or grandparents generation it's not a question but in the other direction and it's like it it's something that has changed so quickly by the way not only in orthodox circles but just in the world at large you know like gay marriage was legalized in in our lifetimes only a couple of years ago so those kinds of issues are things that it's nice when things get moved off the table you know yeah, that's exactly what it is that's exactly what it is it's like the sort of we we look at the world with such different lenses um and and i'm grateful for that i'm excited for that like i just even just you know when i started looking into when i you know started getting abuse tips about various stories um you know i would i would come home and i would talk about it with my husband and you know i would describe to him the stories and cases i was hearing and he would just be like you know, if someone came into my office, he's 32, and he's like, if someone came into my office and said something like that, told me that they were, you know, abused by a teacher or something, it would be immediately dealt with. Like, there's no discussion of, like, putting that guy on vacation for a month and then having him come back. Like, that is not acceptable. You call the authorities. And it was just like, you know, it, it's such a generational difference in how we deal with problems. Right. You mentioned calling the authorities, mm -hmm. which is something that I think people, you know, they, you know, they say you, you should never master, you should never tattle for lack of a better word. Um, yeah. I mean, again, like I feel stupid asking this question because to me, it's like, obviously if there's a situation of, of, you know, abuse or, or a crime or whatever, then you call the police. Um, why do you think mm -hmm. that there's such a, um, a hesitancy to do that? I mean, it's rooted in, you know, in diaspora mentalities of, you know, you don't go to the Goyim, you don't go to the non-Jewish authorities with Jewish problems. We deal with it inside. Um, you know, again, this was, you know, a hundred years ago in a fell of settlement, I understand why one would do that because you hand someone over to the Tsar's police and you don't know how that person would be handled. Um, so, or if there would be bigger repercussions for the whole shuttle, right? So it, we live in a very different time. And I think this is just one instance of many ways in which our community has not really adjusted entirely um, mentality-wise into, you know, living in a democracy, which I hope stays a democracy, but, you know, living in a free society um, where we can trust the authorities. So. Um, and this is obviously a fraught discussion now, but, but in general, that, you know, th that is something we have not really internalized. And um, especially when the criminal is one of our own, right? Um, so it's, it's whatever. I mean, I have nothing more to say other than it's terrible and it, it doesn't work. That's right. the bottom line. It doesn't work. Uh, and I've seen people try, um, you know, in the States and it never works. The person always just walks away on unscathed and continues committing crimes yeah it's it's so true because at the end of the day you know uh, a based in an, an orthodox tribunal or court only mm -hmm. has so much power um yeah, and, they, and it, you know, in, in the old days you could excommunicate someone and you really ruin their life right right here the person just picks up and moves across the earth and you know and builds a new life and all as well Right, uh, or not even across the earth. You just go and you pray in a different shul or something like that. Correct. Like that. Yes, that's true. You could really just go down, down the block, you know, to another shul. Right. Yeah. Right, and it and it just doesn't do that. I'm really glad that we had this conversation because I think that you know what what we started off with is that there's a hesitancy a hesitancy to talk about the issues that we as a community face, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's important to do it. So, you know, if we acknowledge the issues, then you get that much more credit for it. You know, there's no, there's no good that comes out of shoving anything under the rug. And no. And, and I think, that, and I think what you're saying about the good, like when, and I see it, by the way, I see this in all of my work. When I step out, quote unquote, when I meet with a colleague at a major, you know, mainstream newspaper or magazine or, you know, or TV news, 
and you know, I meet people for coffee all the time. And I'm like, they're, you know, they're the Orthodox Jewish woman journalist. And, um, and we, and I see how they react to me and not, not just, not me or my work, but just in general, the concept that there is someone inside the community who cares about something, who is doing something about it. They look at it with different eyes. They really, you know, like I've just, the last few weeks I've been taking interviews from journalists from other publications who are asking me about what it's like to be, what, what it means to be reporting in the Orthodox community, how to report accurately on antisemitism in the community. They, they look to the the outside world can look to us really i believe you know this concept of being a light unto the nations they should look look to us as an as an example of of communities that that are on top of that of their you know of their community health and and that's that's really that's so important if all you care about is optics if all you care about is perception it is it is sufficient you know just that reason alone is sufficient to have to encourage free, you know, Orthodox journalists with freedom of speech. Yeah, I could not agree more. If somebody wants to learn more from you, Avital, where can they go? Um, well, it depends on what platform you're on. Uh, if you're on Twitter, I am on Twitter. If you're on Instagram, I'm on Instagram, Avital Rachel, both places. And, um, you know, you can always drop me a, a line, an email. My email is avital at forward.com, F-O-R-W-A-R-D.com. That is amazing. I'm going to link all of that in the show notes. The last thing that I want to ask you is to you, Avital Chizik Goldschmidt, what does it mean to make an impact? It means to change how people think or look at something. It doesn't mean you have to change their opinion but it means that you um, open their eyes to understand that there may be a different reality. Sounds good. Thank you so much for coming on today, Avital. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find links to the articles Avital mentioned in the show notes, along with all the ways to be in touch with her. You'll also find links to at-home activities perfect for quarantine, some of which are free, all of which are high fashion. Impact Fashion is a line of size-inclusive, modest fashion. Through the end of June, which is tomorrow, if you're listening to this, the time it airs, you can get 40% off using code LOVELYPPE, and I'll donate 90% of your purchase to help get PPE to our frontline healthcare workers. Access all of that by swiping up on the cover art or going to impactfashionnyc.com. To hear more episodes, be sure to subscribe. The episode art was designed by Michelle Moses, original music composed by Nissan Fetman. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Rifki Itzkowitz. Catch me on Instagram and Facebook at impact.fashion.myc. As always, here's to making an impact together.